Well, good, good morning, everybody. A uh, very warm welcome to you, especially if you're joining us this morning for the first time. You're our guest, and it's wonderful that you're here. Uh, really, a special thank you to those who helped out with yesterday's Working Bee. The church was looking absolutely fabulous, and I really appreciate particularly to Phil Mason and, and Jeff Shields in organising that. Really appreciate it. Um, very briefly this morning, if you did receive a weekly view, encourage you to take it home and read it. Uh, particularly if you weren't here last Sunday, we had um, a special opportunity at the end of our service to hear about the leadership's desire to begin a process of searching for a youth pastor, which the church were overwhelmingly in support of. And if you did happen to miss last Sunday, um, it's my last Sunday's presentation, I've just written a brief synopsis of, of the content of that meeting and the process from here on in. So I hope that'll be helpful to you. Uh, also, whenever you see a yellow flyer floating about on a Sunday morning, that's code for a men's morning tea happening on the Wednesday of, of uh, that week. So that's happening this sun Wednesday at 9.30, and I encourage all the guys who are available to come along to that. Well, what we're going to do now is just kind of very briefly take a look at a biblical response to injustice. And when the Bible speaks about the sin of injustice, what it is essentially speaking about is the abuse of power. Injustice is the abuse of power. And Ecclesiastes 4.1 highlights this. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. So what we see in this verse is an understanding that an unjust situation is where you have a person with absolute power and a person with no power, and the person with power abusing the person with no power. Now, for the sake of continuity, we are in a series at the moment looking at the story of David. And it's really interesting because next week, we're actually heading into 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is the well-known story of, of the downfall, if you like, of, of David, where... Um, the story we know of David and Bathsheba. And then in chapter 12, we have uh, the prophet Nathan confronting David about this abuse. Um, and so next week, we're going, to, we're going to continue with our series in chapter 11. The following week, Viv Grice from the Baptist Association will join us and he'll speak on 2 Samuel chapter 12. And then to round our series out... Um, Murray Shanks will come back again and speak on Psalm 51, which is David's response to his sin in this instance. But it's quite remarkable how much this story speaks into the theme of injustice, uh, abuse of power. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And so to actually stick with our series, we're just going to take a very brief overview of this story and look at what God actually has to say about unjust situations where power is abused. Now, as we know from our series where we left off last week, David is at the absolute peak of his power. He's had this long period of time between uh, anointing in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where he's anointed by Samuel as a shepherd boy, and he has this long period of waiting, of um, spending some time in Saul's courts, and then fleeing from Saul. Uh, then David is crowned king over Judah, 
And then seven years later, he is crowned king over all of Israel. Um, He now has a royal palace. The ark is residing in Jerusalem with David. And as we saw last week, God has given David some incredible promises uh, that this royal messianic line will come from him, from his seed. And so David is at the absolute peak of his power. And we'll talk more about this next week. But this is always a very dangerous place for a person to find themselves in. David is at the absolute peak of his power. And then we, see, we read about this story. Um, and just, again, we won't sort of go into too much detail. But the first six verses of Second Samuel give us the summary, particularly for those who perhaps are not familiar with the story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Joab would be like the minister for defence. Um, you know, he's kind of in charge of, of the, uh, the military in, in Israel. He's a very significant person. So David sends Joab out. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from the monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived, and through an intermediate person, she sent a word to David saying, I am pregnant. I want us to look at this story through a different lens this morning because I know from my own personal experience that whenever I've heard this story or or heard someone share this story and I know that as I come to this story in the Bible and even the way the story is told particularly because it is written in a patriarchal time and society we tend to read the story through the lens of David Uh, and this story is in some respects seen as a sad story for David because up until this point David has just been kind of this incredible model um, an incredible example of righteousness and of what it means to follow God But sadly, in this chapter, we see the very human side of David. But even then, we still feel a bit sad that, oh gosh, imagine if this hadn't have happened to David, how great he would have been. What we fail to do in that instance is actually consider the victim in this instance, and that is the woman, Bathsheba. The other thing too, I think, is that traditionally, this is a story where we've focused on sex. Um, This story is kind of told through that lens as well, that if David hadn't have had sex with Bathsheba, that, you know, all of these other things that followed wouldn't have happened. Uh, And so this morning, I want us just to think about the real issue going on in this story. And it's not actually about sex. It's about the abuse of power. David is in this incredibly powerful position And sadly, he chooses to use that power to do something that, for a period of time, destroys another person's life. It sounds strange, but the reality in this story is that David is actually a perpetrator and Bathsheba is a victim. And this is a very different way of viewing this story. But when we think about stories of injustice and slavery, as we've heard about, 
with the work that IJM does, there is always a perpetrator and there, are all, there is always a victim. Now, to have those two people, there has to be a power imbalance. And that's exactly what we find in this story. And for an abusive situation to take place, there needs to be someone with power who wants to exercise that power by controlling another person. And that's what we see in this situation. The way that the author writes this story shows that David all along has all the control. David looks at Bathsheba. He summons her to be brought to him. He sleeps with her. He tries to trick her husband to cover his own face and reputation. He then murders her husband and then David then marries her. In this story, it is David who has all the control. Bathsheba has no power and essentially she has no voice. The only words that we get in this story from Bathsheba is a note or a message that goes to David that I am pregnant. But apart from that, we don't hear from her. And I think what the author is communicating through that is that she was powerless in this situation. Sadly, abuse of power is rife in our world, as we have just heard this morning. The story of David and Bathsheba, sadly, is repeated in all kinds of different situations and contexts. These figures are from 2016. So what Ross quoted earlier, 45 million is a more current Um, accurate figure. But 40 million people in this world are trapped in some form of slavery and we're told that one in four of those are children, a little bit like the story we heard of Foley. This is a terrible situation and as God's people we need to ask what is our response? What is the response uh, on our, um, what is the expectation that the Bible places on followers of Jesus, on people of God? How do we respond to these situations? Well, in the story that we look at, the second part is where Nathan comes to confront David about his sin and his abuse of power over Bathsheba. And in, in this instance, Nathan is the prophet. He is, in fact, the voice of God. And so what Nathan, how Nathan approaches this situation is very instructive for the people of God and for the church as to how God feels and how God responds to these situations. And there are two things that Nathan does. And um, firstly, in chapter 12, we'll just read a couple of verses again that put us into the picture. Uh, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, this is Nathan speaking to David. And previously in the chapter, uh, Nathan had told David like a parable, a parable of a really wealthy man who had lots of sheep and a parable and a story of a really poor man who only had one sheep. And the wealthy man needs to feed a traveller who comes to his place. And rather than taking one of his own sheep, the wealthy man takes the one sheep of the poor man uh, to feed the traveller. And then Nathan says, David becomes sort of outraged at the injustice of this situation and even demands that the rich man be put to death because of the injustice or the abuse of power. And so then Nathan says to David, you are that man. Uh, And then Nathan goes on to say these words to David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. The first thing that we see Nathan doing is he holds David to account. Now, in this story, don't forget that David is the king. He is the king of all of Israel. He is a man who has incredible power. Nathan is a priest or a prophet. He doesn't have anywhere near the power or the influence that King David has. And yet he is faithful to the voice and the word of God and he speaks truth into the situation. He's not afraid to hold David to account. That's the first thing that we see Nathan doing. And followers of God must not hesitate to speak truth to those in power. Now, as we're going to hear shortly, that doesn't necessarily mean that you or I are going to be that voice. The opportunity that we have before us today is to partner with and support those who do have a voice to hold those who are abusing power to account. The second thing that Nathan does is revealed to us in 1 Kings chapter 1. Now, we, we left off um, with Nathan confronting David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After that chapter, there are then 12 chapters remaining in 2 Samuel that we won't be looking at. But ultimately, and very sadly, um, I guess those chapters detail the consequence of David's sin. And, uh, and, and in a sense, the fleeing of his own family. Um, and there's, some sad, there's some, certainly some sad chapters in there where David flees from his own son, Absalom. But the next time we see Nathan in the text is in 1 Kings chapter 1. And again, the context here is David is about to die. And as, we, as I've mentioned a few weeks back, David had eight wives and so he had a number of sons born to each of those wives. And one of those, and now David is about to die. He's, 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 in, he, he's very ill at the moment. Um, he's bedridden, basically. And so there becomes a bit of a, a, a feud amongst the brothers as to who will become the, the succeeding king. And one of David's sons, Adonijah, um, wants to become the next king and basically starts to build a following amongst people of position and authority to crown him David's successor. And here's where we see Nathan entering into the story. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba. So after 2 Samuel chapter 12, the next time we see Nathan, he is standing with Bathsheba, which is fascinating. Solomon's mother. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and our Lord David knows nothing about it? By the way, that is a self-appointed kingship. He hasn't been appointed king by someone with the right authority to do that. But he has a, he has a pool of people following him and has sort of said that I will become your king. Verse 12, now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Solomon, by the way, again, just to fill you in on the context, in the abusive relationship between David and Bathsheba, and I'm assuming that a lot of us know that story, but not everyone, um, 
Bathsheba falls pregnant from that affair. And the child that she gives birth to after seven days dies. Uh, and the second child that David and Bathsheba have together is Solomon. Okay, so that's where that son comes from. So Solomon is the son, obviously, of David and Bathsheba. Then a little bit further on in 1 Kings 1, not 11, sorry. Then King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence, stood before him. The king then took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Again, for those who know the story, Solomon does go on to become the subsequent king after Daniel, after David, sorry. Um, And Bathsheba is now the mother of the king. She ends up sitting at his right-hand side. And it's actually a... We're not going into this today, but it's a beautiful story of redemption for this woman who had had once been terribly abused, now, in fact, becomes... um, brought into the kingdom and you know has this amazing situation where her son is now the king there's, there's a redemption in that story which is amazing but what we're focusing on here is what Nathan does and in this instance the second thing that he does after he holds David to account is Nathan stands with the powerless remember the powerless and the voiceless person in this story is Bathsheba and we see Nathan standing squarely with her we don't ever see Nathan confronting Bathsheba about doing anything wrong sometimes that story has been told in a way that might sort of try and put some responsibility on Bathsheba well she shouldn't have been looking so beautiful and and you know David was tempted by her and surely she had an opportunity to say no and, and these sorts of things which is all wrong David was the one who abused the powerful position that he was in. And so we see here Nathan standing with this powerless, voiceless woman and in fact helping her um, promote her son to become the next king of Israel. It's actually a really beautiful picture of two things that this story speaks to us about how we as the people of God respond to victims of injustice. We must fight for the empowerment of victims. And so to keep continuity with our series, and if we look at this story, which will, as I mentioned, we'll take more time to look at it in more detail. But for today's purpose, this story highlights to us that a biblical response to injustice, to the abuse of power, is to play the role of Nathan. And that is to hold to account those who abuse their power and to stand with those who are victims, with those who are powerless, with those who have no voice, because that is where God is found. And this is the work of IJM. IJM have identified the biblical heart of God for, in, for those who experience injustice and they seek to bring a biblical response to those who suffer to slavery. And so now we spend a little bit of time hearing about the work of IJM and how we as God's people can partner with and support that work. Thank you, Ross.